We're throwing off the filters of tradition and culture to discover what the Bible really says about relationships, relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. Welcome to this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Welcome, I'm Julie Sedenko here with relationship expert Leslie Vernick, and today we're talking about changes, specifically what kind of changes need to happen inside a person before you can expect to see lasting behavior change. So Leslie, in your experience, what are some common destructive patterns that you've observed in marriages or relationships? Wow. Uh, Some common patterns that I've seen is a lack of mutuality, that both people aren't contributing to the relationship uh, in ways that are nourishing and create trust and safety for both. Um, There's a lack of mutual honesty or reciprocity in the relationship. It seems that one person may be the giver and the people pleaser and the other person be feeling more entitled and more of the taker in the relationship that are destructive. Um, Lack of responsibility for when you mess up. Those are very serious Uh, character flaws that when we all mess up, I mean, the Bible tells us that in relationships, we're all going to stumble in many ways. Um, All of the 10 commandments have to do with relationships. Our first few, I think the first four have to do with our relationship with God and all the rest of the 10 commandments have to do with relationships. So God is very concerned about how we do this whole thing about relationships because relationships are essential to our well-being. Healthy relationships nourish us and toxic relationships deplete us. And God cares about that. And so when we are in destructive patterns or when we have destructive elements to our relationship style or our personality or our character, usually people around us will tell us. They'll say, ouch, stop, don't. And when we don't take responsibility, we're not willing to look at that. We're not willing to ask good questions about that. We're not willing to allow people to be our mirrors um, or our cameras to show us things that we can't see all by ourselves. And instead we just get defensive or we shut down or we blame other people or we gaslight or minimize or make excuses for ourselves. Then those patterns themselves become destructive because all of us mess up. But if we can't look at that and change and fess up and confess and deal with it, then change is not possible. Why is it so important to recognize and acknowledge destructive patterns in a relationship? Because when we see things that are damaging to the well-being of what we want, it's important to acknowledge them. So all of us, for example, want to live in a safe environment. We all want to live in safety and peace. God wants us to live in safety and peace. In fact, he's created family relationships to be the safest and the most peaceful relationships because out in the real world, you have a lot of danger. You have a lot of turmoil. And so he wants children to be raised in a safe and peaceful environment, a family, a nuclear family. That's what he's created. So if we were living in a house and we saw a tarantula in the house, we are a rattlesnake, we know those are toxic to the safety and the peace of the people in that house. And we would recognize it. We would do what we could to remove it so that we had restored trust and safety. We had a spider in our house the other day. And you know, I wanted my husband to show me what that looked like, because some spiders are pretty benign, you just kill them or throw them out the window. But other spiders like tarantulas, or black widow spiders, or brown recluse spiders are much more toxic and dangerous 
to the health and well-being, and it was in our bedroom on our rug. And so I didn't want to sleep with one of those spiders. And so it's important for us to recognize what are toxic behaviors, because those toxic behaviors left unnoticed and unchecked destroy not only people, but they destroy relationships. So maybe you recognize your husband has destructive behaviors. How do we help him recognize or see them? That's the million dollar question, right? <laughs> exactly. I could That's make a lot of money. If question. Yeah. That. If I had the answer for that one, boy, I could, it could do a lot of good. Um, so I would say the first thing is that we need to be courageous enough to name them. And what tends to happen with women that we've worked with over the years, Julie, is they, instead of naming the behaviors, they kind of search on the internet and they create a label for those behaviors. You're emotionally abusive, you're narcissistic, you're selfish, you're full of pride, whatever label we give someone. And most people don't take that well. Um, even <laughs> relatively healthy people don't say, oh, thank you so much for telling me yeah. I'm so prideful, right? Um, so that's usually not a good approach to help someone see their behaviors. Um, a much more helpful approach would be to describe them. So when you raise your voice and shout at me, you scare me. When you call me names like you're a this and you're a that and you're a no good, whatever those names, I would repeat what he says or whatever. Those things make me feel like I'm nothing to you, that you just rip me apart with your words and I don't matter to you. And that's not the kind of marriage I want. That's not the kind of man I want to live with. So you're giving him an invitation. Look at yourself. Is this who you want to be? So all you can do when you ask someone to look at themselves, it's sort of like when you're overweight, you look at yourself and you ask yourself, am I happy with myself this way? And if I'm not, then what am I willing to do to change that? And some of us aren't happy with the way we look. We look in the mirror every day and we say, Ugh, I'm not happy that I'm, I'm getting older. I can't really change that much. I'm getting older. So I have to come to terms with accepting that, or I'm never going to have, you know, a long, lean body. I never did, never will. I have to accept certain things that aren't going to change. But there are other things that we look at ourselves and say, you know, I'm not happy that I gained five pounds, but I'm really not willing to give up my ice cream yet. I'm really not willing to do what it takes to lose it. And so even though a woman can perfectly articulate to a man or vice versa, you know, hey, is this what you are happy with? And they might not be happy with it they still might not be willing to change it. Like you just said, he may be unwilling to change it. So maybe you describe it and he doesn't want to see it. Then what? This is where you have to do your own work. So what is the impact on you? So if he won't change, if he's not willing to either admit that you're right, I am looking this way, or he does admit that he is looking this way, he is scary, or he is dishonest, or he is lying, and he's willing to admit it, but he's not really willing, either through his words or his actions, to change it. What impact does that have on you? What impact does that have on the children? And I think this is where you have to ask yourself, am I willing to live with that impact hmm. long term, right? So if I feel scared of my husband when he raises his voice, if when he 
screams at me and calls me horrible, horrible names, and then expects that we can be all lovey-dovey in an hour. I can't do that. The impact is great on me. I'm rehearsing those negative words for weeks. I can't just brush it off or let it roll off my back. That's not how I'm wired. So now what? What do I do if he doesn't want to change? And the impact of his words, life and death is in the power of the tongue, and the impact of his words on me and the kids are it's killing us. Reckless words pierce like a sword. The Bible validates that that has tremendous impact. And so what do I do? Do I blame myself that it has such impact? Would I blame myself if someone took a knife and started stabbing me? And I'm saying the impact is I'm bleeding to death. What's wrong with me that I'm not stronger? No, we would go to the hospital and take care of ourselves and not go home to that person anymore because of the impact of what they're doing and how it affects our life. Now, not everything has the same impact and not everybody has the same degree of impact. So that's where we have to not be judgmental because for someone else that may not have the same impact as it does for you, for, for someone who works and has her own income, Perhaps your husband's gambling addiction doesn't have the same impact on you financially as it does for a mom who's homeschooling the kids. Right. So what if it's the opposite? A man does acknowledge he needs to change his behavior. How do you encourage accountability and responsibility to make those changes? Well, again, that really comes from within. Um, I think you can suggest it. Like if you want to lose weight, you know that having some sort of accountability, some sort of plan, whether you join Weight Watchers, whether you do an online program, whether you just know you're going to do keto or whatever you're going to do, some sort of plan for what is it that I'm going to do to lose weight? What's my action steps? Who's going to hold me accountable? Who's going to provide support? Where am I going to get information? What am I going to do when I'm tempted? All those kind of things are part of the change process even as small as losing five pounds, you have to give them some thought. It doesn't just happen. You have to have an action plan. And so having a conversation with your spouse, okay, I hear that you want to be more honest. I hear that you don't want to lose your temper. I get that. I'm grateful that you want to change. So what might you need to do when you start feeling that rage inside so that you don't explode out and vomit on me and the kids? What, what's your plan? What would be an idea if he doesn't have a clue? So let's go back to just normal examples. If I really want to learn to play golf, and that's a desire of mine, and I don't know how to play golf, and I don't have a clue, what might I do? Start I Googling. Might, yeah, I might start Googling golf. I might start watching golf videos. I might start going to the driving range. I might start going to a sporting goods store and asking if they know a good golf coach. I might start practicing my golf swing, all of those kind of things, right? So if someone really wants to learn something that they have no clue, there are resources on how to learn those things. So if I don't know how to control my temper, I don't know how to regulate my emotions, and you just Google that, there is some YouTube videos, there is some things there. So are they doing that? This is This is really where it's very, very important for the woman who wants her husband to change to watch. Because if someone wanted to learn to play golf, if your husband said to you, "Hmm, I really think I'd like to learn to play golf, 
it wouldn't be you who's Googling right. how to learn golf, right? And, and I'm telling you, I can already tell you right now that there's a lot of people listening that are already thinking about all the resources she's going to hand her husband and all the websites and the books and everything else. And that's a hard no, right? That's a hard no, because you won't know whether he's giving you lip service about really wanting to learn to play golf unless you see him putting some time and energy in figuring out how to learn to play golf. Now, if you see him doing that, it doesn't mean that you can't say in a conversation, wow, Sally's husband plays golf. Would you like me to see if he'd be willing to take you out on the range? Right? I'm not saying that you wouldn't say that at some point. But if you don't see him showing any energy or putting any energy or effort into figuring it out for himself, then he doesn't care that much to learn to play golf. I remember when I was first married, my husband mentioned something about he'd always wanted to learn to fly, to be a pilot. And my brother is a pilot. So I, I called my brother and found out this online course or whatever, and it was not cheap. I paid hundreds of dollars. You know, it was just the initial course. Then I got it for him. I was so excited. I gave it to him for his birthday or Christmas or whatever. The man never touched it. And it was kind of really grated at me because I was so excited. I thought this was going to be his dream come true and you can be a pilot and he'd never touch it. I finally was, I, I kept bringing it up, bringing it up. And I'm like, and then there's this pilot's course and you never did it. And finally he, I said, I thought you really wanted to be a pilot. He said, well, I, I do, but you know, if it happens, it happens. And I was like, that doesn't even make sense. You're not going to just happen to be a pilot one day. You've got to do the work, but it wasn't that important. It was kind of a, yeah, it'd be nice to be a pilot, but I'm not really caring enough to do the work. And it's the same thing with this. Would, would you agree? Yeah. It's the same thing for anything. You know, I really want to save her retirement, but I'm not willing to budget my money or stop spending so much on, you know, Amazon. I really want to lose weight, but I'm not willing to stop eating my ice cream at night, or I really want to run a marathon, but I'm not willing to train to get my body ready to run a marathon. So there's a big difference between someday I'd like to, if it was easy, and I'm really willing to put in the work to learn to do it. Yeah. And I think as a wife or as a woman, I mean, it's true for us too. We're not just putting this on men. If you're a man listening to this and your wife is saying, oh, I'd really like to do this, but she shows no interest in doing it. That's, that's a red flag for you to know that it's pretty much smoke and mirrors. There's talk, but there's no walk. Mm -hmm. And God calls us. You know, the Bible says in Luke 3, 8, John the Baptist said to the Pharisees who were all about just pontificating about all kinds of spiritual things. He said, hey, guys, prove by the way that you live that you've repented of your sin and turned to God. In other words, I don't want to hear your words anymore. Show me. Show me. Show me your energy, efforts, and actions in that direction, and then I'll believe your words. So I think when you are pointing out to your husband, hey, this really bothers me that you don't know how to control your temper, that you're so explosive when life disappoints you, when things don't go your way, well, it's your fault. you know. It, so they tend to blame you. But it's a mindset of theirs that it, I just wouldn't lose my temper if things always went the way I wanted it to. But that's like an illusion. Whoever has life go the way you want it to. 
So part of our responsibility is to learn to manage our feelings and our emotions when life doesn't go the way we want it to, whether it's a traffic jam or whether it's a smart mouth kid. We have to be responsible to manage our temper and our emotions. And if we don't know how to do that, that's an opportunity for us to recognize that and learn to do that. Not everybody has to cater to me so I don't lose my temper. And that's true. But nobody is going to change overnight. So maybe he really does want to change, but he's not going to do it perfectly. What are reasonable expectations to have for the process when it comes to time, slip-ups? Are there specific milestones that someone should look for? Well, we call it old history, new history in our groups that we run, you know, that we all have old history, things that we say we don't want anymore to be a part of our life, whether it's eating too much, whether it's eating too much sugar, whether it's drinking too much, whether it's losing our temper, whether it's uh, watching too much TV, being on too much, whatever it is, we all have our old history of how we were or how we are. And then we want to build stepping stones to new history, how we want to be. I want to be more patient. I want to be more self-controlled. I want to manage my temper better. I want to, whatever it is, I want to save more money. It can be a myriad of different things. So how do we move from old history to new history? And there's a couple of steps that are really crucial. The first is to name it. Like, what is the thing I'm trying to change? What is the, I don't want to do this anymore? And what is where I want to go? What is what I want to start doing? And what are some of the small steps that I can take to get there? So I might say, I don't want to overeat anymore. And I want to lose a hundred pounds. That's way too big of a gulf from old history to new history, Mm -hmm. you know, being perfectly good shape. So what might be some small steps? So it might be that I'm going to take a walk every day, that I'm going to stop drinking five diet sodas every day, and I'm going to drink more water. That might be the first small steps. Well, is someone doing that faithfully? Are they monitoring? I've done this every day. I'm doing this every day. I've done this. And if I don't do it today, am I aware of that? Am I saying, wow, I slipped into old history today. I drank those five Diet Cokes. And that's not what I want to do. What do I need to do tomorrow so I don't repeat that? So it's that step of commitment, defining the change, self-awareness of I'm doing it or I'm not doing it, taking responsibility for what I'm not doing that I want to do, that I say I want to do, maybe asking for accountability and support to do that. Because, you know, I don't know about you, Julie, but when I tell people out loud, I'm going to do this, I'm much more likely to do it yeah, and stick with sure. it because they're going to be asking me, did you do it? And I'm embarrassed to say, no, I didn't do it. So I'm much more likely to do it if I s- declare out loud and have that accountability and support to get me over the rough spots. But it doesn't mean we don't have slips. But when we have slips and I drank those five Diet Cokes or I lost my temper today and I called my wife names, do I say, wow, what happened that I didn't stick with my program? What do I need to do differently next time that happens? And and here's a way that we might think about this. And I've used this example before, but I'm not sure I've used it on a podcast. So we all learn to manage our ability to go to the bathroom 
around two years old. Before that, we just pee our pants and poop our pants whenever we want to. We don't even think about it. We just do it. But at some point around two, our parents are gracious enough to say, hey, you don't want to do this when you go to school. You don't want to do this when you grow up. This is something you need to learn to manage. You need to pay attention to when you start to have to go to the bathroom. We're not going to use a diaper anymore. We're going to go in the toilet. And so we all unless there's something really cognitively wrong with us or biologically wrong with us, we all mature into learning how to manage to hold our urine and our other stuff, even vomit, until we can get to a place where it's more acceptable to let it out. We're all having warning bells inside of our body. And there are accidents at times because we didn't pay attention to our capacity. Uh, usually as children, we pee our pants because we were busy playing and we weren't paying attention to, uh, we really had to go. Or we felt sick and we weren't near a bathroom and we just couldn't hold it anymore. So we have limits to our capacity. So in the same way, we have to learn emotional regulation as well. What is our capacity when we're starting to feel angry? How much can we handle before it's going to come out? And if it comes out, can it come out in a safe place, like in the bathroom, versus over my kids or over my wife? And so this is part of learning to control, recognizing I'm angry. Okay, what do I need to do to calm down? How much can I feel before I'm going to let it rip with my words? Where can I let it rip with my words in a safe place? Maybe I can go in the car and drive by myself. Maybe I can write it out in a journal. Maybe I can take a walk. Maybe I can pray. But I don't want to lash out on my kids or my spouse anymore. I don't want to do that. So these are the things that we do to learn how to do it differently. But for those of you who are listening, you can't make someone do that work. You can support their work, but if they're not doing the work, all the support you give isn't going to help them do their work because they have no interest in doing the work. What are some behaviors that maybe would contribute to a disappointing marriage, but it maybe wouldn't necessarily qualify as destructive or abusive? You know, I was thinking about that. And I think sometimes personality differences. So for example, I'm pretty introverted. And I'm married to more of a talkative person than I am as much as I'm out here talking, 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 talking. In a social setting, I am not a talker at all. If nobody knew who I was, mm -mm, I would be very quiet. I would sit on this couch and just look at everybody. And I would listen. I would listen really well. I'm a very good listener. I'm not a talker. And so I'm much more of an introvert. I like being alone. I like my alone time. I like studying and reading and walking and being alone. I don't need to be with people. It's not that I don't can't be with people. I can and I enjoy it. But then I like to be alone and just regroup. So that might be disappointing for someone who is really hoping for a fun, adventurous, active, fun-loving wife. That's not me. I'm a pretty serious introvert. And so I don't think that's a sinful thing. I think that's the way God made me. I'm not going to change that. Can I be more outgoing for a few hours? Yes. Can I sustain that for a whole marriage? No. Can't even sustain it for a whole day. So my husband could be disappointed in that, that I'm not more fun and more extroverted and more willing to go try fun things. He's not, but he could be, right? Just like I could be disappointed that he's not more ambitious and more hardworking. And he's kind of a guy who's very phlegmatic and very easygoing and could sit all Saturday and just watch television all afternoon, which would totally not be my thing, right? And so I think these are the kind of things that we have to learn to love the person who they are and not who we thought they were or who we think they could be unless their behavior is destructive and sinful 
and damaging. And then I think it's our responsibility as a spouse, as a helpmate to say, hey, what you're doing is so destructive to you, to me, to our family, to our future, that I'm going to have to talk to you about it. It's not okay. It's not something I can accept. How can individuals rebuild trust and create new patterns of behavior after they recognize and address destructive patterns? There's two things that we want to see. And one is that they're growing in their capacity to accept responsibility for when they slip up. They're not blaming, they're not excusing, they're not minimizing. They're saying, wow, I really blew it. I had too much to drink last night. I really blew it. I lost my temper. I'm sorry. That's something I need to work on. And perhaps I do need some more accountability or support because obviously doing it on my own isn't working, right? So they're, they're growing in their capacity to notice when they're out of line that you're not having to always point it out to them to take responsibility for, hey, I'm failing to live up to the man that I want to be, that I said I would be, that I'm not doing the work enough to be successful. So what might I need to do? I might need to go to counseling. I might need to get some therapy. I might need to get some coaching. I might need to get some additional help and accountability and support to get where I say I want to go. So there's this growing capacity of self-awareness, we call it emotional intelligence of saying, wow, I want to do this and I'm not yet there. And I'm not sure I know how to get there. So I'm going to invite other people to help me get there when I keep failing. So that would be one thing. And the other thing is, how does he receive your feedback? So if I'm going for pickleball lessons, because I want to learn to be a better pickleball player, nobody's forcing me, I really want to play better. And my pickleball coach says, Leslie, I'm, I'm watching you play pickleball and you're do, making the same mistake over and over again. You're still running when you hit the ball and you have to stop running or you're not going to hit the ball straight. So he noticed something that I didn't notice because I'm, I'm in the moment and I'm just playing like I always play. And so my pickleball coach is noticing a bad habit pattern that I have in my game that is hurting the progress I want to make. And what do I do when he gives me that feedback? Do I say, you don't know what you're talking about. Why do you always have to say, you know, why do you always have to criticize me? Am I defensive? Am I argumentative? Am I shut down? Am I resentful? Or am I grateful that he noticed something that I didn't notice? And so in a relationship, when you're in partnership with someone who they know they've done destructive things, and you know, they've done destructive things, and they're not noticing that they're falling back into old patterns, but you are. And you give them feedback and saying, hey, I noticed that you're not doing your program. I noticed that you're eating ice cream every night. And you said you wanted to lose weight. I'm noticing that, you know, you're losing your temper with the kids again. And you said you didn't want to do that anymore. What's going on? Are they grateful for that feedback? And are they willing to redirect and regroup and move back into a program for new history, because none of us change perfectly. Hebrews 3.13 says, let us encourage one another day after day, lest any one of us become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so this idea for women that we're to just be our husband's biggest cheerleaders and biggest encouragers and biggest supporters without also speaking the truth in love and giving them accurate feedback. If you want to be a good pickleball player, you must receive feedback. If you want to be a good husband or a good mother or a good father, you must receive feedback. And the feedback comes in terms of consequences, like, well, wow, I really messed up because I'm 
you know, seeing the consequences, my wife is leaving me, she's filing for divorce, or my kids won't talk to me, or someone's giving you feedback. This really harmed me. I don't trust you. You're repeating old history, and they won't listen to that. Then change isn't really going to happen very long because they're not willing to stick with the process of change. Well, and what if you come to him and he doesn't care? He obviously, uh, whatever he had said before is done and he could care less now. What should the woman do? Well, again, I think it depends on the impact on her and the children of his decision. So let's say, you know, he tried to stop watching porn and, you know, you caught him again watching porn and he's not willing to go for treatment. He's not willing to just say, you know, this is the way I am. You're just making too much of this. Everybody does it. Get off my back. Leave me alone. This is where you as a woman, as a wife have to decide what's the impact of this on me and what's the impact on our kids. And am I willing to live with that impact or am I not willing to live with that impact? And I think, it's, I think it's okay for a woman to think, no, I'm not willing to live with that impact. I am not willing to live with that impact. He doesn't want to change. He refuses to change. And so what you might have to come to terms with is saying, I accept that you're not willing to change, that you don't think porn has a bad impact on you, but it has a bad impact on me. And I don't want to sleep with you. I don't want to be intimate with you. I don't trust you. I don't even like you when you're that kind of man. And I don't think I can live with you if that's the life you choose in a good way. So those are the consequences of his decision not to change. So the, the key things to know that a man is really trying to make those changes in his heart isn't necessarily perfect behavior, but that he is researching and trying and doing his own work. And you can see that. Would that be correct? Yeah. And that he desires to be that kind of man. The apostle Paul talks about it really clearly in Ephesians when he's talking to thieves. He starts with behavior change. So he says, thieves, stop stealing. Right. So I might say to an abusive man, stop hitting, stop calling names. That's harmful. We want to stop the harmful behavior. Right. So that's the first step. But it's not the last step. And it's not the only step because that's a temporary safety measure. It's a temporary measure for changing behavior. So he says, thieves, stop stealing. Thieves, people who steal, think about the heart because God wants us to have a heart change, not just a behavior change. So the heart of a thief is a heart of selfishness. I want what I want. And even if I have to take it from you, I'll take it from you because I want what I want. I don't care about you. I only care about me. So that heart is very selfish. So Paul is saying to the thief in Ephesians, I think it's five, stop stealing. So that's the behavior change on the outside. And then he says, instead, I want you to get a job and I want you to work hard so that you can provide for those who have needs. In other words, he's saying, I don't want you just to stop stealing. It's not about just stop watching porn. 
It's about a change of heart. So he's saying, thieves, I want you to stop this selfish stealing behavior, but I don't want you to stop there. I want you to learn to work so that you learn to have a giver's heart, not a taker's heart, so that you can provide for others in need. That's the person I created you to be. I created you to be having a giver's heart, not a selfish heart. So you've got more work to do. It's not about just stopping taking. It's about learning to give. What resources would you recommend for people that are wanting to make some changes in their own heart, in their marriage? Where do they start? The beginning resources of saying, this is what I want. And there are programs now, AA for addicts, Overeaters Anonymous, I mean, free programs that people can get involved with. There's coaching that people can find a coach to help them with to begin to make those changes. There's counseling, individual counseling, if that's something that you think you need to deal with some past trauma or history that maybe keeps you stuck in repetitive cycles of sin and dysfunction. There is plenty of help out there available for you. I find that the best help for this is group help because it's not just one counselor who's going to give you information that's going to change. It's a group of people where we're broken and damaged in relationships. And if that's where our trauma is and we're acting out in destructive ways, we're also healed in community and in relationships. And so I find that a support group that knows the truth about what's going on, that's why AA has been so effective because you have people Mm -hmm. who you're ruthlessly honest with about where you are. I slipped. I had a drink last night. Where are we? Let's, these are my steps. These are my 12 steps. I've got to work on these 12 steps. And is that the only program? No, but it's a proven program that has helped hundreds and thousands of people to stop drinking, not just stop drinking, but learn to be better people, learn to be healthy, productive citizens. And so we want to just not stop abusive behavior, stop destructive behavior. We want to move from just that to becoming all that God called us to be. And there are uh, programs and coaches and counselors and all of that out there that will help you. And so don't isolate. The Bible tells us to confess your sin one to another. And that's where we find help and support is being honest and showing that we need help and getting that help and accountability and support to make the changes we want to make. I know you offer a lot of wonderful programs, whether it be Conquer or Moving Beyond People Pleasing, Empowered to Change, Private Coaching. What about men? Are there, and and I know we're not supposed to be serving the men what they should do, but are there programs for men? There are programs. Chris Moles has a program out there. But again, if you're a man looking up that, that's great. If you're a wife looking up that and saying, hey, you need to go to Chris Moles' program for for abusive men, uh, that's probably, you know, just like if you say you need to go to AA, they might go, but if they don't have any heart to change, Mm -hmm. it's like going through the motions. And so the last thing that you want to do is give your husband a checklist for who he needs to be. Jesus didn't do that for us, and we don't do that for other people. We let them be who they want to be, and then we decide whether we can live with them safely and in a trusting relationship or not. What if he asks you, what, what it, do I do? Where do I go? I might say, well, let's do some research together. And I would see if he's showing any interest in doing the work of at least exploring what programs are out there for men who need help with. What, what word would you use? I would ask him, what okay. does he see as his problem? So that he's starting to 
begin that self-awareness of, yeah, I have a problem with anger or I have a problem with drugs or I have a problem with drinking. So then you'd put it in. What programs are out there for Christian men who have a problem with drinking? What programs are out there for Christian men who have a problem with anger? You're going to find some things on Google. Um, you're going to find some things in books. Andrew Bauman has a good book, How Not to Be a Donkey. Now he uses a different word, but for men who don't want to be that kind of man. And it's a good book. It's actually a good book. It's a book isn't enough, but a book is a start. But this is where someone has to show some initiative to wanting to change. Because if he's not showing initiative, then he's really just trying to placate you. Would that be right? Right. He's using words to calm you down. He's using words to avoid the consequences. So sometimes we don't use this so much in abuse treatment anymore, but there used to be something called the abuse cycle. You can still find it in some of older videos and things, but the abuse cycle isn't true for everybody. So we've kind of moved away from it, but there's a honeymoon phase after someone has done something destructive. They hit you, they've lost their temper. They did a road rage. They lost a lot of money and a stupid investment or whatever they did that they show sorrow that they're sorry for what they did. And so you begin to think, okay, they're getting it. They're not going to do this anymore. But that honeymoon phase is not genuine repentance. It's let me tell you how sorry I am so that you don't hold my feet to the fire of consequences, so that mm. you don't put me in jail, so that you don't call the police, so that you don't tell the pastor, so that you don't tell our children, so that you don't leave me. And it's a honeymoon phase of good behavior until he's sure that you've gone past the point of, okay, I'm, she's not going to do that. And then it'll start revving up again, the same old patterns. And so there isn't real change. It's just, it gives you a, a kind of a clear vision that he's capable of change because right. he does act better during that time, but it's temporary. There isn't a conviction that I want to be better and do better. It's, I know how to play the game to get her off my back. Would you pray for women that are in a situation where they're praying that their husband gets it and changes in the heart. Yeah. Yeah. And prayer is powerful, but I also yes. want to add that Jesus doesn't change anybody against their desire to change. So if someone doesn't want to change and they're not bowing the knee and asking God for themselves to change, God doesn't reach down and change someone. So pray for him that he would encounter circumstances that would cause him to want to change. Lord Jesus, we pray for people that we know and love deeply who are caught in sin destructive behaviors, unhealthy patterns of selfishness and pride and arrogance and entitlement in ways that they use people to um, gain their own advantage, whether it's financially or sexually or spiritually. Lord, we just pray that people who are married to those kind of people, people who live with those kind of people would be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, that they would not retaliate, that they would not become like them, that they would not repay evil for evil, but that they would pray for real change, that they would not be enablers of destructive behaviors, but they would be lights of truth and love, that they would expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness that are going on and invite someone into healthy change. And if not, that they would allow healthy boundaries and appropriate consequences to take the place of that so that those consequences and those boundaries might wake someone up when words would not. We just pray that you would give our listeners wisdom and support to do the right thing, the next right step. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. If you need clarity on whether your marriage is difficult, disappointing, or destructive, go to lesliebernick.com forward slash start 
for Leslie's free quick start guide. It's totally private and will help you get clear on your next step. Again, that's lesliebernick.com forward slash start. Until next time, may God bless your relationships with him, with yourself, and with others.